$80. That's like a million dollars to me. I don't have $80, but I know it'll be worth it because this is going to get me an agent. Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story and the people that craft and tell them. Each week, a storyteller will tell one of their stories and then break it down with me, Sean. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, but also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, grit stories. We are in the middle of season two, which is dedicated entirely to women and their stories. Today, I am joined by Stephanie Rogers. Steph lives in Chicago, Illinois. She is a force in the world of story. We met last spring and became friends shortly after we all locked down and we remain friends and today work together. So I'm psyched that she's joining me here today. She's a really good storyteller and producer and teacher, among other things. Now, if you want to help us out, in addition to listening, let folks know about this podcast, please. And if you listen on Apple, you can rate, review, and subscribe. That really does help. If you have a question or a comment, you can reach us at hello at storygrit.com. And you can also message us on our Facebook page, Grit True Stories That Matter. As always, check the show notes for upcoming classes and events. We'd love for you to join us. These classes and events are usually fun and you will learn. Okay. Stephanie Rogers, let's dive in. You ready to do some storytelling? Nope, I'm ready to listen to your story. Steph Rogers, for those of you who don't know her, and there's probably very few people in the world who don't know who you are, in or out of story, is in Chicago. She's actually in a little room. I've seen her there for almost a year in this one room. Uh, Steph's also a Mainly, not only a storyteller and teacher, but producer. That's probably your main gig, if anything. It's the mainest of the gigs. But, you know, I like to keep it interesting and have something different going on every single day. There's no way I could ever do one thing the same every day. Could you, Sean? Well, there are certain things I do every day, but I'm not sharing them here. That's That's for sure. It's a different podcast. That leaves much to the imagination. This is a compelling conversation. (laughs) <laughs> so let me let me give you an informal introduction as if Steph Rogers needs an introduction. I uh when I started Grit, which wasn't called Grit when I started, just after the lockdown, I had several events and I'm reaching out to people. I'm like, "Oh, these people are big wigs in story and I don't know how I met it and I knew of Steph because I heard about her through somebody in Story Jam and she's got this really cool thing she does in Chicago where she gets storytellers, but then creates this original music. I asked her to be on one of my shows. This was back in May, seven by seven, Mm -hmm. which I've shelved for now, but it may may make a comeback. She came on, we became friends or Zoom friends, whatever that means. And then we've been like in in each other's bubbles, so to speak. Like Steph has 
the cocoon, I have the swap shop. Steph had a 90-second video submission contest. I morphed that into the 99-second slam. I'm trying to introduce you, but I'm finding it's hard to do it in less than a minute or two because you've got a lot going on. Well, thank you for that nice compliment. That is just the case. When you're in storytelling, you probably do have a lot going on because you need to be generating stories at all at all given moments. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, and our most recent collaboration, last month we started and we're going to continue teaching, I hope, uh, the 99 Second Story Workshop, which is fun. It's incredibly fun, you know, and there's already a very high level of storytelling going on online, which you've really generated, Sean. But the level of storytelling that comes to our classes then, you know, it used to be a couple years ago when we were in person, our classes were sort of beginning level. Everybody was a beginner. Nobody knew much about storytelling. Now everybody is getting really good. Good practice. Good feedback. You have a Monday swap that's invite only closed for now. But uh, Fridays is open. Fridays is open. So if you hear this and you want to get a little feedback, as long as you're willing to get and take the feedback, uh, Fridays is open. Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. So no more self-promotion. Steph, by the way, has great teeth. If you've ever, you won't see her because it's a podcast, but if you can imagine great teeth while she tells the story, that's an image you want. Steph, here's the question I have for you. And then we're going to just, what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask this question so people have a little more context. Then you're going to tell the story live. Sure. Live. Yes. What I want to know, how did you really get into this kind of personal narrative story? What drew you in? When was that? I was taking a solo show class. I thought, you know, you know what actors do when actors can't find the role or they can't get the roles they want? They just create shit, right? So I decided I was going to create a solo show back, way back when I was in theater school. It was kind of the hot thing. You know, Spalding Gray was a hit. People like Elaine Stritch on Broadway and Lily Tomlin were doing these, these solo shows that they created themselves. So I thought that was kind of the model. So I always had it in my mind that I wanted to do a solo show. I took a solo show class in 2013 with Arlene Malinowski, the queen of solo in (laughs) Chicago. She's writing a book about it with Julie Ganey right now. I think it's going to be the book. I mean, I don't even know if there is a book, but- There are books. I mean, I've looked on that on Amazon. There's some stuff, but I'm I'm sure their angle is unique. Oh, it's going to be amazing because they're both amazing. They're both brilliant. So I took this class with Arlene Malinowski six weeks. It was fun. She invited me to join her private Saturday morning class Mm -hmm. where we went to her house and worked with her for a year. In the course of that year, I learned about Live Lit in Chicago. There was a bit of a scene already. I started attending those shows and I thought that is even cooler than a solo show. But Mm -hmm. one thing they're missing at these Live Lit events is the musical component. My dad is a documentary filmmaker, but he's also, my mom and my dad are both theater lovers. So we grew up immersed in kind of Broadway theater pop culture. Uh, So I always, I already have a theater kind of mentality about things and especially a musical theater uh, mentality. But anyway, I saw that there was a need for the integration of music and and story and how the, the music could really echo the stories and allow the listener, the audience to further absorb each story in a new way and just sort Mm -hmm. of give them sort of a musical break and a digestion moment. That's when How Story Jam started. But I was also leading an orchestra at the time and I was having some ear problems, uh, some tinnitus in the ears, hearing problems. And I really had to leave my job as a band leader 
because mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it anymore. Mm. Multi-talented. And then, so you decided to find something that you could work a massive amount of hours and lose a tremendous amount of money, but you did it because you loved it. Would you rather do something you love and be broke or do something that you hate and be rich? Now, as I sit <laughs> here today, or if I could go back in time, I'd probably take the latter. The former <laughs> who the fuck tell who 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 who, who said to chase the dream thing isn't just an, an imbecile who's probably rich, <laughs> probably rich, just trying to yeah. It's funny because it wasn't until the pandemic that the live show actually made some money, and mm-hmm. we only made money because we got a sponsor. So so now we are just we seek sponsors, and we have sort of corporate partnerships and we have, we're building partnerships with people. So our next show in October that we're doing is definitely going to be full of sponsorship. What you need to do in order to tell your story though, is for me to stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot tell this story if I'm talking. (laughs) Do you want me to just go ahead and tell the story? I mean, I was going to just talk about talking, telling the story for another 20 minutes and put people to (laughs) And I will lose every listener. I probably have three or four regular listeners. Uh, and thank you for that if you're out there. And they will stop listening forever if we continue talking and don't tell an actual story because we're not, we're not fulfilling the promise that I made. You know, um, it's much more fun to talk about stories than it is to craft stories because crafting stories is hard. We're going to talk about that after your story. Yeah, it is hard. Listen, I'm a, the storyteller I am today is not the storyteller I'll be in a year from now, you know, right. hopefully, hopefully. Right. So right. with improvement, you know, we'll all get better and better and better. And kind of I've started to, to, to think, gosh, you know, you can decide which way you want to go. Do you want to be more of a comedic storyteller? Do you want to be more of a serious storyteller? Do you want to just get them in the gut? How do you want to be as a storytelling performer? But yeah. those are decisions and things that kind of evolve, I think. And right now I'm just, I'm just trying. That's great. And you can try those different things too, right? And see what sticks. Sure. So you got a story. This is the moment I'm going to stop talking. And when you're ready, you will start your story. It's 1993 and I'm playing tennis. But like everything else, the tennis court is just another stage. I'm an actor in LA, which is kind of like saying I'm a snowflake in a blizzard. I've got a few credits, FBI agent in a Chuck Norris film, hippie woman in a Stephen King TV show. I've done a bit of theater, some indie films, a bunch of commercials, but now I'm broke and I'm living in near squalor on the second floor of a garage. Two nights ago, I was invited to a Northwestern alumni party, which I really didn't want to go to, but I heard there was going to be this big Hollywood agent there who went to Northwestern. So of course I go. Getting an agent in Hollywood is just fucking impossible. It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Even if you find the needle, getting the needle to care about you is kind of like getting a needle to care about you. Needles don't care about you. Needles are assholes. Plus, I hate this town. I hate everything about it. The traffic, the smog, the dating, the people. But if I could just get an agent and secure myself in this business, I will not have to go back to Chicago defeated and embarrassed. Anyway, I'm at this Northwestern party. I scan the room and I spot him, the Hollywood agent. I know it's him without even seeing a picture of him beforehand because when you live in LA, you learn to walk into a room and pinpoint the players. They dress well, they wear sunglasses day or night. They smell like a newly leased Ferrari. 
His name is David Gersh. And once I spot him, I find myself pushing my way right into his conversation, introducing myself and proceeding to command his evening. And we talk small talk about Northwestern, but then he casually mentions that he's got this tennis match in the morning. And that's when I perk up. Oh, you play tennis, I say. He tells me he's a member of the Beverly Hills Tennis Club and how much he loves clay courts because tennis balls bounce slower on clay. Therefore, it's easier on the knees. And I smile because I know that tennis balls bounce slower on clay. I used to teach tennis. I was the club champion back home, played tournaments, was on the high school all-state team. I can hit a fucking tennis ball. So the next day I wake up and of course I call the Beverly Hills Tennis Club where there are maybe like 200 members and I book myself an $80 lesson with the head pro. $80, that's like a million dollars to me. I don't have $80 but I know it'll be worth it because this is going to get me an agent. When I arrive at the club, the pro shakes my hand, a little pleasantries, a slow warm up, and it's supposed to be a lesson, but I'm acting like it's the finals at Wimbledon and I'm just ruthless. I'm running all over the court. I'm slamming the ball, grunting, sweating, triumphing. And at the end of the lesson, I just verbally toss out to the pro that I know one of the members here. And he says, who? I say, David Gersh. And he asks me if Gersh knows how well I can play. And I say, no, we've actually never had the chance to hit. And he says, well, I'm going to have to tell him how good you are. Which is, of course, exactly what I'd hoped he'd say. The next day, as I'm feeling a little guilty, but gloating in my cleverness, the phone rings. Of course, it's David Gersh, head of the prestigious Gersh agency, who is now inviting me to hit with him at the exclusive Beverly Hills Tennis Club. So here I am again at the club, this time hitting balls with a big power agent. And again, I am playing as if my life depends on it. I am ruthless, slamming the ball, grunting, sweating, triumphing, but it suddenly feels like I'm watching myself in a film and I'm a character. I'm a character who has cleverly manipulated her way here into this scene, who's become so skilled at walking into a room and picking out who to talk to. And instead of feeling proud for my ingenuity, I feel empty and alone. And I'm even a little sickened. I wanted to be an actor, to play famous women in history, challenging film roles, complex characters. I wanted to be a serious actor, not a Hollywood player. I thank Mr. Gersh, I shake his hand, and I take a look around, a last look around, and I realize, I don't know, I don't actually hate L.A. I hate what L.A. has done to me. feel to tell a story to one person on zoom (laughs) especially when that one person is sean wellington (laughs) when he's staring at you staring you down as if you better not suck man i wonder wonder if i have that effect on people that's funny (laughs) i'm sure you do i'm sure part of the reason that people rise to the occasion for the 99 slam is 
because you're watching them, Sean. I don't know about that, but hey. Judgy eyes. Yeah, oh God. So when did you first write that story? You remember when you first put it together? I don't write a lot of stories and I don't work on a lot of stories lately. Yeah. Because there's other stuff going on. But um, I started it, I would say, in December of 2020 and then just pulled it out again yesterday so I could right. do it for you today. <laughs> Jeff came to our swap shop, Friday swap shop, which is open and uh, she got some feedback. So, you know, that, that, that speaks to your something in terms of like not thinking, nah, and I, my, I'm Steph Rogers. My shit's awesome. Like you're like, nah, I'll get some feedback. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Dan Squander gave me an awesome note on the story. He told me to drop some breadcrumbs in before the, the end. And then, and then you know, a couple other people had heard it before. Richard Munchkin had heard it before. So he had a couple great things to yeah. say. Everybody in, the, everybody in the room is just really, really good about the feedback. So for those of you who are listening and you're looking for something to do on Friday afternoons, please oh, join us at Swap. Do you realize that Steph just went into a late night DJ voice? <laughs> yeah. Did you guys hear that? <laughs> Did you hear what happened and mm-hmm. how it changes the tenor of everything? Yes. There's a couple of things about the story that are interesting. So you go from hating, when we talk about change, right? And an arc and these words we use, sometimes people are like, what are you talking about? Right? I just want to tell a story, but it's worth noting like Steph and I'm paraphrasing or simplifying a little bit. I don't like LA in, in the beginning to essentially, it's not really LA, it's me in LA. Mm. That's like a clear beginning to end. And what happens in between? You just play around with that. Yes. Right. So that's interesting. Uh, that's I that's wanna... the whole idea is like, a, there's a, there's an arc of some kind. Although, you know what, Sean, does there have to be an arc? I'm sort of getting sick of arcs. Okay. <laughs> Do we uh, always need an arc? Sometimes a story can just let like leave that cliffhanger ending. I love a cliffhanger well, ending. Let's talk about that for a moment. I want to talk also about scenes and making movies in our minds. That that thing that I think is really important that you do well, you have four distinct scenes in your story. And you also start where you end in that location. Both very interesting choices. It's funny because everybody always says, beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end. Every story has to have a beginning, middle, end. And I was always annoyed by that too. Think yeah. about it. You heard it in high school composition classes. You heard it in college classes. I went to grad school for writing. We heard it in, in grad school, beginning, middle, end. Right. Screw all of those people who said that because they really didn't define it. And in storytelling- they didn't define it. You're right. They didn't define it. They just said you have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Nobody knows what the hell that means. It's very unclear to this day. What do you think it means? I have no idea. Well, then why were you even talking? (laughs) Here's what I think it means in storytelling. My life was like this. Then something happened. Now my life is like this. That's all it means to me. But But that's a perfect way of explaining it. That's also either overlapping or essentially the same thing as arc. Yeah. I think is something, your life was one way. You went through some stuff. That could be the action and or your internal, right? You and Arlene talk about the two stories. Is one way to frame it, right? The yeah, she loves the journey of events versus the journey of emotions, right? Yeah, and that's and it's a dance. Yeah, and but, you're a little bit different at the end. Maybe not radically different in your story. It's pretty big, like, but some people it's just a slight shift in awareness, right? Right. I mean, a slight shift in awareness. Exactly. I'm a little bit changed by this situation. I'm a little bit different. And but, this is why people who think they don't have stories are wait for it wrong because we don't actually give too much of a shit about the big events in your life. We don't. It's a myth. 
It's not true. We act like we do. We actually don't care. What we care about is how you felt about your stuff, what you've gone through, and how honest you are with yourself and us. And that's what we connect with. I may not have, I, I, I didn't go to Everest. I didn't play tennis at a high level. I've never lived in LA, but I know what it's like to feel like a little fake, or I know what it's like to feel a little bit disgusted with myself. Yes. Also, you know, many people have, I mean, what, what are the life experiences that are possible in the world? Okay. You broke something, you got in an accident, you got a divorce, you got married that there are some, there are like 20 things that everybody kind of does. Right. Right. So there's some stuff that tends to be universal in terms of external. Yeah. Unless you're me, no one ever wants to date you, but that's not really what we're here (laughs) for. There are people who are like, I was a Russian spy or I was a Holocaust survivor. Okay, sure, sure, sure. You're a little bit special, okay? You're a little different than everybody else. But pretty much everybody has the same stories, right? So what is different about your story is what's going on in your your head. The people that have those extreme exceptional events, I actually think it's uh, it, it hurts them more than helps them because they lean on the exceptional nature of it and they don't develop the other part, which we actually care more about. That's so interesting. That so the people that, that have, have done these great adventures, they, they might be wicked good storytellers, but they lean on it and it's just enough to be good enough, but they're never great. This is so interesting because I've noticed that at a lot of slams in Chicago, you know, the person who was the crystal meth addict who overcame that, that guy's always going to win, win the moth. Um, or the person who has this phenomenally difficult, tra- tragic me too mm-hmm, story or something, mm-hmm. you're going to, you're going to win. You're just going to win. But is it story crafting or is it just an unbelievable experience? And have you elicited a massive amount of empathy from the audience? And that's why you won. Right. Mm-hmm. So story crafting might be a little bit different because if you take, as we say in classes, you know, if you take a very benign a situation like I'm going to go to the grocery store and get groceries. Mm-hmm. That's just something everybody does. That's a trite, common thing people do. But if you infuse it with narrative, you know, if you infuse it with internal narrative, like this reminds me of when my mother used to take me to the grocery store, but she didn't have any money and she would dig through the, the bottom of her purse to try yeah. to find coins so we yeah. could buy a loaf of bread. Yeah. Then it's a story. And then how did that develop and how did that affect you as a as a human being. I was just chatting with someone yesterday about the difference. There's a few differences I see in like, and this is snobby sounding, but like mediocre or good stories and like really good or great stories. One of the differences that you see across the board for me is the internal. Mm. We, we get a really good sense of the internal story, the internal narrative, call it whatever you want, inner voice, inner monologue. It's all the same shit for me. And what's happening outside uh, the events, the grocery store or the tennis match or whatever. And in most stories that aren't that good, I don't care if it's a moth thing or not, you tend to get, generally speaking, there's plenty of exceptions. This is what happened. And then this happened. And then this happened. And then this happened. And it's eh. just a plot. It's just a plot. And you know what? Nothing really happens in that tennis story. Think about it. I go, I play tennis. I get a tennis lesson. I go home. I go back and play play another game of tennis. That's all that happens in that story, really. There's nothing happens. I mean, like, let, let's break this down. And by the way, I yes, stories need an arc to go back to what your question was. You know what? <laughs> if you want to try it and be all French and nothing happens at all <laughs> and have no arc and no beginning end and be all postmodern, try it. 
Listen, when storytelling becomes a huge thing, you know you're going to get those uh, avant-garde storytellers who just like give you this non the deconstructed story. Like that's going to happen someday, but we're probably twenty years away from that right now. (laughs) Yeah. At the end of the day, do we feel something or do we not? You know, isn't it sometimes nice to have the sort of litmus test be very simple and straightforward? Not, oh, can we can we reverse engineer your dramatic arc? No. Did I feel something or not? If I did, you did something right. If I didn't, you probably didn't, or I'm just weird. So in this story, you start at the, you made a choice to start at the tennis court. Some people would start their stories at the chronological beginning. The chronological beginning of this story is actually the alumni party, Mm -hmm. but you did not. So you start at the tennis court and then you sort of go back in time, not long, a couple of days to the alumni party and then work your way forward to then the tennis lesson and then back at the tennis court with Gersh. You know what? I prefer the, these days, I prefer stories that start you in the action because as John Updike said, you know, um, at Kurt, as Kurt Vonnegut said, um, start as close to the end as possible, right? If you start in that moment where shit is about to change, but then you pull us back. I find that really interesting in storytelling. I'm trying to do it and, and learn it. And then you fill in with like some detail. Fill us in with a little backstory. You know, who are you? Where, how'd you get to this moment? What are you doing here? All of that stuff. Because when you start with that, because God, one of the things I really want to try to stay away from in storytelling, which is sort of something that's commonly leaned into, is let me tell you about the time that I, I almost lost my life. Let me tell you about the time that I decided to leave L.A., you're just giving it away, but everybody kind of leans to that. I'm sure we all lean. We well, we used to. We don't. What do, what do you mean they lean into the idea of tell, giving it all away or the big Yeah, like thing? starting it really, telling it chronologically. Okay. You know, and saying, because that's just the, that is sort of the default, I think, is to tell a story chronologically sure. and to st- sort of start it with, start it with your thesis statement of some kind. Like, here's my thesis statement. I'm going to tell you what I believe in, how I discovered what I believe in as a human being. And then- I think those are two different things there. You can start chronologically without giving anything away. I know you do. You can do that. Of course you can do that. Yeah. You could have just what? started at your alumni party and just discovered along with us. Yeah. You could have done that. I definitely could have done that. Maybe I should have done that. No, 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 no. I like the way it's structured. I think it's really good. I mean, I I just, um, I mean, who does that where they, you know, you know, who does that stuff? You know, who who gives your thesis statement in the world of storytelling? Comedic storytellers. Oh. Because then they attack it from every angle and it's more like almost a stand-up thing in story and they can get away with it. But you better be good and you better be funny or comedic or humorous. Otherwise you really gave us so much before we needed it and no surprises we want, we want the surprise right we want some no dis- surprise give me a little little bit of cake like a little little a little taste of the cake and then the little more cake and then because i'm gonna want that i want to want to want that whole piece of cake but just right. let me want the piece of cake and the piece right. of cake is the ending but yeah the i think also writers do it too not just comedic storytellers but writers who are just born and built to make an essay out of everything, right? Yes. Personal narrative essay. Hi, I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to tell you about clock making in Germany in the late 1700s. And that now you know that this was the innovation of clock making, but then they proceed to tell you all about how it happened. But that's not a story. Right. And you like cake. Uh, Listeners, wherever you are, maybe you're in Sri Lanka, maybe you're in Turkey, maybe you're in Chile. 
Steph had four scenes. And what I mean by scenes is they are set in a specific location, tennis court, alumni party, uh, tennis court, tennis court, set in a specific location, usually a specific time. And it allows her, I think, to activate our imaginations. We can imagine Steph at a red clay court in a fancy tennis plate, right? Because you mm-hmm. told us that's where you were. And what is also kind of cool Almost everybody, unless literally, unless you have a, some sort of neurological block, we're going to do some imagining. It's what we do. When you say you're at a fancy Beverly Hills tennis club with red clay, whatever the hell comes up, we're going to imagine some stuff and we're going to fill it in, which is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to go overboard with all that extra stuff that is not really related. Like we don't need to know how ornate the design is of the main building. Like, let us fill that in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're going to give us the main stuff. We're going to fill it in. And we. so if you were just giving us like right off the bat, like background about how you didn't really like LA and you were really struggling and it goes on and on, we can't, you're not activating that in us, right? Mm. Like you're not letting us see something. Yeah, right. I talk a lot. No, no, no. I'm, it's funny because you can really get, so what's organic and natural in terms of what you relay about mm-hmm. the surrounding scene? You know, what do you need people to know versus what really do they need to know, right? Yeah. And and when yeah. I was kind of creating this these scenes, I was not so much constructing the scene for you. A tennis court is a tennis court. You can picture it. Yep. When I say it's a fancy club, I guess, you know, I could have I could have really described it more but it, i don't know did it that didn't really serve the narrative it doesn't seem to serve it like it's, no. it's it's enough because that's not like the center of the story let us imagine it yeah it's a mind movie it's a mind movie and it's it's it is interesting it's your mind movie and my mind movie sort of dancing right yeah and you pictured red clay and it wasn't red clay it was dark it clay doesn't matter yeah you but just think right. it's red i've been influenced by the french open isn't everybody yeah what what notice what Steph also does is that once she's built the scene, example, she's at the alumni party. You're imagining her talking to David Gersh, but then you break out of that a little bit and you give us some background information. So it helps us understand the stakes or why, right? Back, context. And then you go right back to the moment where you left off. That's good shit. That's very good shit. That's very satisfying. Mm. Action, action. Here's how I'm thinking or feeling, or maybe some other information. And then I'm right back to talking to Gersh. You allow us to just continue the flow in our minds. Wow. I'm going to write that down because I like the, that note. Oh. Let's not, <laughs> it Don't sounds it like up. it was incredibly intentional, <laughs> but I like the idea of putting yourself in the scene, filling it in with what's necessary and then getting back into the scene. I just love right. doing that. That's, that's fun. It's fun. It's like freezing a moment. Yeah. You come back to it. Advanced level shit. Yes. <laughs> what, what are we? We're not rookies here. <laughs> so the takeaway is scenes. Scenes. Have scenes in your stories. If you don't want to call them scenes because it feels too Hollywood, fine. Call it something else, but have them. The only way you cannot have scenes. I mean, you know, if if you don't have scenes, then you're just making like a mission statement, a manifesto. It, it's a different, it's right? It's just a manifesto if you're not, if you don't have scenes. 
I was thinking about putting in the story that I had to borrow a tennis racket from the pro. I didn't put that in. There are certain things like I didn't even bother to bring a tennis racket to Los Angeles. I didn't think I was going to play tennis. Right, so I had to borrow a tennis racket. Maybe that should have gone in the story. I was kind of debating whether or not to put that stuff in. But there was a moment where I was thinking, wait, I, I don't have a tennis racket. Shit. Mm. You know, I'm driving. Yeah. I'm driving there and I'm like, God, I've got to borrow a racket. I hope it's a decent racket. I, so all these things going on in your head and then all these, ex, there's extraneous stuff that doesn't make it into a story when we're telling right. a story. But there's also a little bit of crafting and maybe beautifying a moment or maybe shaping, gilding, carving. shaping and gilding a lily. Yes, to a degree that definitely like the realizations that you have 10 years after a story, 20 years after a story are far different and look, our memories suck. They're way worse than we think. <laughs> but we, we try to agree that you remember the events as honestly as you can. I think, though, like the inner voice stuff, the inner monologue stuff, you have a little artistic. You can play a little bit. You can play a little bit. To make, you know, the, as long as sort of the emotional honesty of the stories there, like play a little bit. Do you remember exactly what you were thinking in 1997? Probably not. So you're you're taking a little bit from today. And a little bit from then, and you're, you're making it's a piece of art, but it's true. Art, and you're 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 re you know. So I've thought about that moment so many times since it happened, right? Right, right. So I've, right. I've retold that story over and over again in my head, retold, retold, retold. Yeah. Every time I tell it, who who knows really how far away? All I know is that there this thing happened, and I had this moment where I was like, "This place is not for me." That's what I, that's what I know. I know I worked my ass off to to hit the ball with the pro. I know I worked my ass off to hit the ball with the agent. But other than that, like filling in those details, those have been filled in over time. Right. And they may or may not be 100% accurate. Do you think this is a good time for me to talk about pickleball? Let's talk. Now, by the way, Steph uh, shared a version of that story at some point in the past. And she included other information that didn't make this version. The point being, it's a work in progress, maybe always. Yes. You could always be playing. And you probably couldn't have done that without some feedback from people you trusted, whether Swap, Cocoon, or other people. You couldn't. No, you need you need, a, you need other eyes. You need other eyes on it, for sure. Because when you think, sometimes I think I have a fantastic story. Right. I mean, it, this has happened where I'm like, this story is it. It happens in songwriting too, Sean. Yeah. I, I wrote a song in the beginning of the pandemic that I thought was absolutely awesome. So proud of myself. I remember bringing it to my little songwriting group and everybody was like, eh, mess, Steph, you can do better. And I was like, what? Because I, I, I worked so hard on it. It was all right. about, it was like being in the pandemic and having to face your, your demons and stuff. And I just thought it was such a great song, but you know, other people need to hear for sure. You need other eyes on it. I need other eyes on it. Final question about this story. If you could change one thing about it, what would you tweak? What like a little part, like a small part? It could be one or, word. It could be your tone. It could be the ending. Anything? Is there anything that you, after getting feedback yesterday and telling it today, you're like, you know what? If I choose to continue working on it, that's one thing I might play with. I mean, there's so many. It's Here's not this one. Not one. There's not. Yeah. I would put more humor in. I'm so serious all the day, goddamn time. Great point. Humor. Yeah. Humor. Next question is, do you have, we've talked about a few of these things, but is there sort of a secret pro tip? A secret pro tip? Yeah. Like, mm. <laughs> if you really want to get it, you want to get good at this, whether you're beginning or, or maybe you've been doing it for some time, 
a little secret hack. Here's here's the here's the my favorite, but this is already kind of widely known. But mm. like, just bury as many secrets as you can, and reveal them as necessary. Don't tell anybody anything until they absolutely have to know. Mm. <laughs> this in life or in story? In story. Well, generally that works for life too, doesn't it? I think so. That's a good. That's a good rule to live by. Don't give away your your cards. I think that's Keep everything buried. Bury, 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 and then reveal. And when you reveal, let it land like so, so hard. I mean, I just love it in story when storytellers do that thing where they where you don't expect this to happen. They lead right. you sort of down a path, and then it's like, oh shit, you led me down that path. I was falling for it. I love I love when that happens. Uh, of the all the famous women in history that you wanted to play that you never got to play because agents are impossible to get in L.A., who was your famous woman you wanted to play the most? Hildegard de Bingham. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I was expecting like Eleanor Roosevelt or, <laughs> you know, uh, Billie Jean King. <laughs> well, absolutely. So I always identified with Chrissy Everett, Steffi Graf. Right. Oh, you you're know. so Chrissy fucking Everett. I'm so Chrissy Everett. I want. I would want to play Chrissy Everett or Martina Navratilova. So yeah, Chrissy Everett would be would be up up there for sure. But yeah. um, somebody who was like a little bit naughty but stuck in a in an oppressive system, mm -hmm. someone who broke out. That's the kind of what I always wanted to be. Mm -hmm. The person who who just broke the rules and did cool shit. Yeah. Well, it, you, you kind of are living that way as you, Steph. You don't have to act it. It's your life. <laughs> as much as, you know, a suburban mom. Sure. Right. Can do, can do that. Sure. I mean, I did show up to the suburbs with purple hair 14 years ago and I didn't make a lot of friends that year. Bougie but... motherfuckers. The final question and maybe the most important one is, will you sponsor Grit with a $10,000 contribution? Oh, sure. Let me just go write a check right now. In fact, I'll just give you cash. Why waste the check? Right. And we don't have to do anything with like formalities <laughs> and taxes and other stupid shit. Why aren't you going? <laughs> you do what you have to do in this business, Sean. Steph is always involved in a lot of stuff. She and I are doing a 99 second workshop. What's the date that's starting as of June, 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 June. I believe it's three two-hour or two-and-a-half-hour meetings on Zoom in June, Monday June nights. 7th. And it's a good deal. There's a lot of value to teachers. And we're not, we don't really fuck around. Steph's nicer than I am. We're both good at this stuff. I have got a few events. I always put the links in the show notes. And Steph, in addition to your sort of stuff that's coming up soon, you want to plug anything? Story Jam has a bunch of storytelling classes. We have a monthly show slash open mic with peer feedback called The Cocoon. That's the second Saturday of every month. And we will continue to have plenty of classes and they can all be found at storyjamstudio.com. Anything else? I love you. Peace out. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support and special thanks to Steph, Stephanie Rogers in Chicago. Check the show notes for information on events and classes for both Story Jam 
and grit. And join us this Sunday, if you should hear this in time, for Flash, which is story plus improv plus a little courage. It's going to be a lot of fun. That is all for episode number 32.